Section 9 of the Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denny Sayers. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. Translated by W.C. Firebaugh. Volume 2 The Dinner of Trimalchio. Chapter 60 through sixty nine. Chapter the sixtieth. But we were not given long in which to admire the elegance of such service, for all of a sudden the ceiling commenced to creak, and then the whole dining room shook. I leapt to my feet in consternation, for fear some rope walker would fall down, and the rest of the company raised their faces, wondering as much as I what new prodigy was to be announced from on high. Then, lo and behold, the ceiling panels parted with an enormous hoop, which appeared to have been knocked off a huge cask, was lowered from the dome above. Its perimeter was hung with golden chaplets and jars of alabaster filled with perfume. We were asked to accept these articles as souvenirs. When my glance returned to the table, I noticed that a dish containing cakes had been placed upon it, and in the middle an image of Priapus, made by the baker, and he held apples of all varieties and bunches of grapes against his breast, in the conventional manner. We applied ourselves wholeheartedly to this dessert, and our joviality was suddenly revived by a fresh diversion, for, at the slightest pressure, all the cakes and fruits would squirt a saffron sauce upon us, and even spurted unpleasantly onto our faces. Being convinced that these perfumed dainties had some religious significance, we arose in a body and shouted, Hooray for the Emperor! the father of his country. However, as we perceived that even after this act of veneration, the others continued helping themselves, we filled our napkins with the apples. I was especially keen on this, for I thought I could never put enough good things into Giton's lap. Three slaves entered in the meantime, dressed in white tunics, well tucked up, and two of them placed lares, with amulets hanging from their necks, upon the table, while the third carried round a bowl of wine, and cried, May the gods be propitious! One was called Cerdo, business, Trimalchio informed us, the other Lucrio, luck, and the third Felicio, prophet, and when all the rest had kissed a true likeness of Trimalchio, we were ashamed to pass it by. CHAPTER THE SIXTY-FIRST After they had all wished each other sound minds and good health, Trimalchio turned to Niceros. You used to be better company at dinner, he remarked, and I don't know why you should be dumb today, with never a word to say. If you wish to make me happy, tell about that experience you had, I beg of you. Delighted at the affability of his friend, I hope I lose all my luck if I'm not tickled to death at the humor I see you in, Niceros replied. 
All right, let's go to the limit for a good time, though I'm afraid these scholars'll laugh at me. But I'll tell my tale, and they can go as far as they like. What the hell do I care who laughs? It's better to be laughed at than laughed down. These words spake the hero, and began the following tale. We lived in a narrow street in the house Kavila now owns, when I was a slave. There, by the will of the gods, I fell in love with the wife of Terentius, the innkeeper. You knew Melissa of Tarentum, that pretty round-cheeked little wench. It was no carnal passion, so hear me, Hercules, it wasn't. I was not in love with her physical charms. No, it was because she was such a good sport. I never asked her for a thing, and had her deny me. If she had an ass, I had half. I trusted her with everything I had, and never was done out of anything. Her husband up and died on the place one day, so I tried every way I could to get to her, for you know friends ought to show up when anyone's in a pinch. Chapter the Sixty-Second It so happened that our master had gone to Capua, to attend to some odds and ends of business, and I seized the opportunity, and persuaded a guest of the house, to accompany me as far as the fifth milestone. He was a soldier, and as brave as the very devil. We set out around Cockrow. The moon was shining as bright as midday, and came to where the tombstones are. My man stepped aside amongst them, but I sat down, singing, and commenced to count them up. When I looked around for my companion, he had stripped himself and piled his clothes by the side of the road. My heart was in my mouth, and I sat there while he pissed a ring around them, and was suddenly turned into a wolf. Now, don't think I'm joking. I wouldn't lie for any amount of money, but as I was saying, he commenced to howl after he was turned into a wolf, and ran away into the forest. I didn't know where I was for a minute or two. Then I went to his clothes to pick them up, and damned if they hadn't turned to stone. Was anyone ever nearer dead from fright than me? Then I whipped out my sword and cut every shadow along the road to bits, till I came to the house of my mistress. I looked like a ghost when I walked in, and I nearly slipped my wind. The sweat was pouring down my crotch, my eyes were staring, and I could hardly be brought round. My Melissa wondered why I was out so late. Oh, if you'd only come sooner, she said, you could have helped us. A wolf broke into the folds and attacked the sheep, bleeding them like a butcher. But he didn't get the laugh on me, even if he did get away, for one of the slaves ran his neck through with a spear. I couldn't keep my eyes shut any longer when I heard that, and as soon as it grew light I rushed back to our Gaius's house, like an innkeeper beaten out of his bill. And when I came to the place where the clothes had been turned into stone, there was nothing but a pool of blood. And, moreover, when I got home, my soldier was lying in bed, like an ox, and a doctor was dressing his neck. I knew then that he was a werewolf, and after that I couldn't have eaten a crumb of bread with him. No, not if you had killed me. Others can think what they please about this, 
but as for me, I hope your geniuses will all get after me, if I lie. Chapter the Sixty-Third We were all dumb with astonishment, when, I'd take your story for granted, said Trimalchio, and, if you'll believe me, my hair stood on end, and all the more, because I know that Niceros never talks nonsense. He's always level-headed, not a bit gossipy. And now, I'll tell you a hair-raiser myself, though I'm like a jackass on a slippery pavement compared to him. When I was a long-haired boy, for I lived a cayenne life from my youth up, my master's minion died. He was a jewel, so hear me Hercules he was, perfect in every facet. While his sorrow-stricken mother was bewailing his loss, and the rest of us were lamenting with her, the witches suddenly commenced to screech so loud that you would have thought a hare was being run down by the hounds. At that time we had a Cappadocian slave, tall, very bold, and he had muscle, too. He could hold a mad bull in the air. He wrapped a mantle round his left arm, boldly rushed out of doors with drawn sword, and ran a woman through the middle about here. No harm to what I touch. We heard a scream, but as a matter of fact, for I won't lie to you, we didn't catch sight of the witches themselves. Our simpleton came back presently, and threw himself upon the bed. His whole body was black and blue, as if he had been flogged with whips, and, of course, the reason of that was she had touched him with her evil hand. We shut the door and returned to our business, but when the mother put her arms around the body of her son, it turned out that it was only a straw bolster. No heart, no guts, nothing. Of course, the witches had swooped down upon the lad and put the straw changeling in his place. Believe me or not, suit yourselves, but I say that there are women that know too much, and night-hags, too, and they turn everything upside down. And as for the long-haired booby, he never got back his own natural color, and he died raving mad a few days later. CHAPTER THE SIXTY-FOURTH Though we wondered greatly, we believed none the less implicitly, and, kissing the table, we besought the night-hags to attend to their own affairs while we were returning home from dinner. As far as I was concerned, the lamps already seemed to burn double, and the whole dining-room was going round, when, See here, Plocamus, Trimalchio spoke up, haven't you anything to tell us? You haven't entertained us at all, have you? And you used to be fine company, always ready to oblige with a recitation or a song. The gods bless us, how the green figs have fallen. True for you, the fellow answered, since I've got the gout, my sporting days are over. But in the old times, when I was young, Spark, I nearly sang myself into a consumption, how I used to dance, and take my part in a farce, or hold up my end in the barber-shops. Who could hold a candle to me, except, of course, the one and only Apelles? He then put his hand to his mouth, and hissed out some foul gibberish or other, and said afterwards that it was Greek. 
Trimalchio himself then favoured us with an impersonation of a man blowing a trumpet, and when he had finished, he looked around for his minion, whom he called Croesus, a blear-eyed slave whose teeth were very disagreeably discoloured. He was playing with a little black bitch, disgustingly fat, wrapping her up in a leek-green scarf, and teasing her with a half-loaf of bread which he had put on the couch, and when from sheer nausea she refused it, he crammed it down her throat. This sight put Trimalchio in mind of his own dog, and he ordered Skylix, the guardian of his house and home, to be brought in. An enormous dog was immediately led in upon a chain, and, obeying a kick from the porter, it lay down beside the table. Thereupon, Trimalchio remarked, as he threw it a piece of white bread, No one in all my house loves me better than Skylix. Enraged at Trimalchio's praising Skylix so warmly, the slave put the bitch down upon the floor, and kicked her on to fight. Skylex, as might have been expected from such a dog, made the whole room ring with his hideous barking, and nearly shook the life out of the little bitch whom the slave called Pearl. Nor did the uproar end in a dog-fight. A candelabrum was upset upon the table, breaking the glasses, and spattering some of the guests with hot oil. As Trimalchio did not wish to seem concerned at the loss, he kissed the boy and ordered him to climb upon his own back. The slave did not hesitate, but, mounting his rocking horse, he beat Trimalchio's shoulders with his open palms, yelling with laughter. Buck, buck, how many fingers do I hold up? When Trimalchio had, in a measure, regained his composure, which took but a little while, he ordered that a huge vessel be hung with mixed wine and that drinks be served to all the slaves sitting around our feet, adding, as an afterthought, if anyone refuses to drink, pour it on his head. Business is business, and now's the time for fun. Chapter the Sixty-Fifth The dainties that followed this display of affability were of such a nature that, if any reliance is to be placed in my word, the very mention of them makes me sick in my stomach. Instead of thrushes, fattened chickens were served, one to each of us, and goose eggs with pastry caps on them, which same Trimalchio earnestly entreated us to eat, informing us that the chickens had all been boned. Just at that instant, however, a lictor knocked at the dining-room door, and a reveller, clad in white vestments, entered, followed by a large retinue. Startled at such pomp, I thought that the praetor had arrived, so I put my bare feet upon the floor and started to get up. But Agamemnon laughed at my anxiety and said, Keep your seat, you idiot. It's only Habinus the Sever. He's a stonemason, and if report speaks true, he makes the finest tombstones imaginable. Reassured by this information, I lay back down upon my couch, and watched Habinus's entrance with great curiosity. Already drunk and wearing several wreaths, his forehead smeared with perfume which ran down into his eyes, he advanced with his hands upon his wife's shoulders, and, 
seating himself in the praetor's place, he called for wine and hot water. Delighted with his good humor, Trimalchio called for a larger goblet for himself, and asked him, at the same time, how he had been entertained. We had everything except yourself, for my heart and soul were here, but it was fine. It was, by Hercules. Sisa was giving a novendial feast for her slave, whom she freed on his deathbed, and it's my opinion she'll have a large sum to split with the tax-gatherers, for the dead man was rated at fifty thousand. But everything went off well, even if we did have to pour half our wine on the bones of the late lamented. Chapter the Sixty-Sixth but demanded Trimalchio, what did you have for dinner? I'll tell you if I can, answered he, for my memory's so good that I often forget my own name. <laughs> Let's see. For the first course we had a hog, crowned with a wine cup and garnished with cheesecakes and chicken livers, cooked well done, beets, of course, and whole wheat bread, which I'd rather have than white, because it puts strength into you, and when I take a crap afterwards, I don't have to yell. Following this came a course of tarts, served cold, with excellent Spanish wine, poured over warm honey. I ate several of the tarts, and got the honey all over myself. Then there were chickpeas and lupines, all the smooth-shelled nuts you wanted, and an apple apiece, but I got away with two, and here they are, tied up in my napkin, for I'll have a row on my hands if I don't bring some kind of a present home to my favorite slave. Hmm? Oh, yes, uh, my wife just reminded me. There was a haunch of bear meat as a side dish. Scintilla ate some of it without knowing what it was, and she nearly puked up her guts when she found out. But as for me, I ate more than a pound of it, for it tasted exactly like wild boar, and, says I, if a bear eats a man, shouldn't that be all the more reason for a man to eat a bear? The last course was soft cheese, new wine, boiled thick, a snail apiece, a helping of tripe, liver pate, capped eggs, turnips, and mustard. But that's enough. Pickled olives were handed round in a wooden bowl, and some of the party greedily snatched three handfuls. We had ham, too, but we sent it back. Chapter the Sixty-Seventh But why isn't Fortunata at the table, Gaius? Tell me. What's that? Trimalchio replied. Don't you know her better than that? She wouldn't touch even a drop of water till after the silver was put away, and the leftovers divided among the slaves. I'm going to beat it if she don't take her place, Habinus threatened, and started to get up. And then, at a signal, the slaves all called out together, Fortunata! Four times, or more. She appeared, girded round with a sash of greenish-yellow, below which a cherry-coloured tunic could be seen, and she had on twisted anklets and sandals worked in gold. Then, wiping her hands upon a handkerchief, which she wore around her neck, she seated herself upon the couch, beside Scintilla, Habinus's wife, 
and clapping her hands and kissing her. My dear, she gushed, is it really you? Fortunata then removed the bracelets from her pudgy arms and held them out to the admiring scintilla, and by and by she took off her anklets and even her yellow hairnet, which was twenty-four carats fine. She would have us know. Trimalchio, who was on the watch, ordered every trinket to be brought to him. You see these things, don't you? he demanded. They're what women fetter us with. That's the way us poor suckers are done. These ought to weigh six pounds and a half. I have an armband myself that don't weigh a grain under ten pounds. I bought it out of Mercury's thousands, too. Finally, for fear he would seem to be lying, he ordered the scales to be brought in and carried around to prove the weights. And Scintilla was no better. She took off a small golden vanity case which she wore around her neck, and which she called her lucky box, and took from it two eardrops, which, in her turn, she handed to Fortunata to be inspected. Thanks to the generosity of my husband, she smirked, no woman has better. What's that? Habinus demanded. You kept on my trail to buy that glass bean for you. If I had a daughter, I'll be damned if I wouldn't cut off her little ears. We'd have everything as cheap as dirt, if there were no women. But we have to piss hot and drink cold, the way things are now. The women, angry though they were, were laughing together in the meantime, and exchanging drunken kisses, the one running on about her diligence as a housekeeper, and the other about the infidelities and neglect of her husband. Habinus got up stealthily, while they were clinging together in this fashion, and seizing Fortunata by the feet, he tipped her over backwards upon the couch. Let go! she screeched, as her tunic slipped above her knees. Then, after pulling down her clothing, she threw herself into Scintilla's lap, and hid with her handkerchief, a face which was none the more beautiful for its blushes. Chapter the Sixty-Eighth After a short interval, Trimalchio gave orders for the dessert to be served, whereupon the slaves took away all the tables and brought in others, and sprinkled the floor with sawdust mixed with saffron and vermilion, and also with powdered mica, a thing I had never seen before. When all this was done, Trimalchio remarked, I could rest content with this course, for you have your second tables, but if you've something especially nice, why, bring it on. Meanwhile, an Alexandrian slave-boy, who had been serving hot water, commenced to imitate a nightingale, and when Trimalchio presently called out, Change your tune, we had another surprise, for a slave, sitting at Habinus's feet, egged on, I have no doubt, by his own master, bawled suddenly in a sing-song voice, Meanwhile, Aeneas and all his fleet held his course on the billowy deep. Never before had my ears been assailed by a sound so discordant, for in addition to his barbarous pronunciation, and the raising and lowering of his voice, he interpolated Atalane verses, and, for the first time in my life, Virgil grated on my nerves. 
when he had to quit, finally from sheer want of breath, "'Did he ever have any training?' Abinus exclaimed. "'No, not he. I educated him by sending him among the grafters at the fair. So when it comes to taking off a barker or a mule-driver, that's not his equal, and the rogue's clever, too. He's a shoemaker, or a cook, or a baker, a regular jack of all trades. But he has two faults, and if he didn't have them, he'd be beyond all price. He snores, and he's been circumcised. And that's the reason he can never keep his mouth shut, and always has an eye open. I paid three hundred dinars for him. Chapter the Sixty-Ninth Yes, Scintilla broke in, and you've not mentioned all his accomplishments, either. He's a pimp, too, and I'm going to see that he's branded, she snapped. Trimalchio laughed. Ha-ha! <laughs> There's where the Cappadocian comes out, he said. Never cheats himself out of anything, and I admire him for it. So help me, Hercules, I do. No one can show a dead man a good time. Don't be jealous, Scintilla. We're next to you women, too, believe me. As sure as you see me here, safe and sound, I used to play at thrust and parry with Mama, my mistress, and finally even my master got suspicious and sent me back to a stewardship. But keep quiet, tongue, and I'll give you a cake. Taking all this as praise, the wretched slave pulled a small earthen lamp from a fold in his garment, and impersonated a trumpeter for half an hour or more, while Habinus hummed with him, holding his finger pressed to his lips. Finally the slave stepped out into the middle of the floor, and waved his pipes in imitation of a flute player. Then, with a whip and a smock, he enacted the part of a mule-driver. At last Habinus called him over, and kissed him, and said, as he poured a drink for him, "'You get better all the time, Massa. I'm going to give you a pair of shoes.' Had not the dessert been brought in, we would never have gotten to the end of these stupidities. Thrushes made of pastry and stuffed with nuts and raisins, quinces with spines sticking out, so that they looked like sea urchins. All this would have been endurable enough, had it not been for the last dish that was served. So revolting was this, that we would rather have died of starvation than to have even touched it. We thought that a fat goose, flanked with fish and all kinds of birds, had been served, until Trimalchio spoke up. Everything you see here, my friends, was made from the same stuff. With my usual keen insight, I jumped to the conclusion that I knew what that stuff was, and turning to Agamemnon, I said, I shall be greatly surprised if all those things are not made out of excrement, or out of mud, at the very least. I saw a like artifice practiced at Rome during the Saturnalia. End of section 9